Let us now hear the second commandment of our God. Exodus chapter 20, beginning verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Showing mercy unto thousands, the meaning is thousands of generations, of those that love me and keep my commandments. Now, there's a lot of confusion in many Christian circles about the precise function of the second commandment and its relation to the first. Some Christians uh, think that the second commandment is saying, if you make an image of Ganesh, the elephant god of the Hindus, riding on a mouse, or if you make a graven image of Kali, uh, full of serpents, with a green face and a red tongue sticking out with an evil expression on its face. And if you bow down in front of that image, you have broken the second commandment. But that's not so at all. If you do that, you're breaking the first commandment by having other gods alongside of Jehovah. The second commandment is not discussing the making of images as means by which people try to serve false gods. The second commandment is dealing with people who try to make images as means by which they desire to worship the true God, the one true triune God who is our Lord and our God. And so, you see, the first commandment is telling us that we are to worship Jehovah Jesus alone. The second commandment is saying that when we worship Jehovah Jesus, we are to worship Jehovah Jesus in a spiritual manner and not to attempt to make any graven image of Jehovah Jesus or to bow down before any graven image of Jehovah Jesus and of course still more before a graven image of an altogether false god and so the Roman Catholic um, position that they are not breaking this second commandment by making statues of Jesus or of Mary and using these as means to serve the true God uh, behind uh, the statue of Jesus or the true God uh, who is the creator of Mary whose statue they use as a means to come to the true God uh, cannot be allowed. 
The second commandment assumes that we are worshipping the true God and him alone, but it prohibits us from trying to serve the true God in false ways. And I think it's very significant that many, many Roman Catholic catechisms and books on ethics omit this second commandment altogether, which of course means that they end up with nine commandments rather than ten, but then they split the tenth commandment into two. The tenth commandment which says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or pardon, thy neighbor's house, and they make that the ninth commandment, and then the tenth commandment they say is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. But clearly, the tenth commandment is against coveting anything, whether it be your neighbor's house, or your neighbor's wife, or your neighbor's ox, or your neighbor's ass, or anything that your neighbor has. I suppose if you were sufficiently ingenious, you could split it up into about five different commandments. One prohibiting the coveting of your neighbor's house, the second prohibiting the coveting of your neighbor's wife, the third prohibiting the coveting of your neighbor's manservant, your fourth prohibiting the coveting of your neighbor's maidservant, fifth prohibiting the coveting of your neighbor's ox, sixth prohibiting the coveting of the neighbor's ass, and seventh, prohibiting the coveting of anything which is your neighbor's. But really, these are just seven different aspects or examples of things that you can covet in terms of this one tenth and only tenth commandment. And so then, if all seven of those aspects relate to one commandment, the tenth commandment, it is clear that this second commandment we're dealing with now against graven images is indeed the second commandment and means what Protestants say it means and is wrongly, indeed blasphemously omitted from the list of ten commandments by such Roman Catholics and other people who proceed to do so. My child was given a bracelet in the United States, supposedly with the Ten Commandments dangling down from it and with the Second Commandment omitted. Uh, and the Ninth Commandment was stated to be on this bracelet, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, clearly, the bracelet was manufactured by Roman Catholics and had not hesitated with the word of God the way that it's written simply to try and defend or to obviate Protestant uh, legitimate Protestant attacks against Romish uh, practice of breaking the second commandment well then this commandment too thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image has both a positive and a negative aspect and again I think it's good for us to deal with the positive aspect what this commandment requires us to do before we proceed more obviously to ask what is it that this commandment prohibits us from doing namely manufacturing graven images of the true God or any of the persons of the true God and so the catechism asks the question, question 108, what are the duties required in the second commandment? Answer, the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. Now, in dealing with the first commandment, I pointed out that 
we must at all times and in all places, whether worshipping God or whether eating or drinking or playing or washing up the dishes or fighting fires or whatever, we must keep on remembering that the true God is the only God and that he is to be our God. However, the focus of the second commandment, while focusing on the way in which the one true God is to be worshipped, is specifically concerned with worship. That is to say, when we are worshipping the true God, as opposed to when we are thinking of and serving the true God outside of worship times, when we are actually worshipping the true God, whether in ch worshipping him in church or worshipping him at family worship or worshipping him in personal worship in our bedrooms or whatever when worshipping him we are to receive, observe and keep pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word now there are three aspects uh, that are involved here every time we worship God. We are to receive, we are to observe, and we are to keep pure all the ordinances that God has given us in his word. Perhaps before dealing with those three aspects, we can look at the source from which the principles of worship are to be derived. Catechism is very clear here. Uh, the principles of worship are derived from the Bible as God hath instituted in his word. Refer you to many portions of the Bible, Deuteronomy 32 verse 46, where Moses says to the people, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe and to do, all the words of this law. It is in the Bible, the written word of God, and centrally in the Pentateuch, in the law of God, the first five books of the Bible, that the principles of worship are to be found. And it's such a sad thing that in our day and age we have such an outrage and a hue and a cry coming expectedly from the liberals but sadly sometimes even from evangelicals as to the ongoing necessity of the Pentateuch of the Mosaic law as being determinative of the principles of worship by which the one true God is to be worshipped. But our catechism you see drives us to the law of God and indeed to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 46. All we think of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who says uh, in two places in Matthew, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our body and all of our power and all of our mind. And then he says to his apostles, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations uh, and baptizing the nations and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now we must ask where has Jesus commanded the apostles? And the answer to that is in the Bible because Jesus did not first start commanding people at the time of his incarnation. No, no. 
uh, as the second person of the Trinity. He was already giving commands to Adam in the Garden of Eden and forever since, down through Old Testament times. Therefore, to belittle the Old Testament or any part of it is to belittle the Word of God, the central person of the Trinity who revealed those revelations to man from the time of Adam onward and who later re-endorses and reaffirms them and indeed adds to them in New Testament times and who enhances them. Or I think to of Acts chapter 2 verse 42 where we're told that the first converts in, and uh, uh, additions to the Christian church visible on the day of Pentecost continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And of course that doctrine is the word of God even as the apostle Paul later enjoins uh, the young evangelist uh, Timothy to preach the word for there shall come a time, he says, when they shall not endure sound doctrine. So then, if we would please God in the way in which we worship him properly, the prescribed way, it has got to be worship according to the word of God. Particularly according to the word of God as grounded in the Pentateuch at the very beginning of the Bible. Because if you don't understand that, the first books of the Bible, you're certain to go astray and to misunderstand the sense in which God intends you to understand the 6th, 7th, 8th through the 66th books of the Bible which follow on the building blocks of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's just that simple. And you recall that when Jesus was asked a question on divorce, and when the Pharisees pointed Jesus to uh, Deuteronomy 24 on divorce, Jesus immediately said, in effect, you can only understand the true meaning of Deuteronomy 24 if you understand it in terms of the prior revelation of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which says, it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, God makes a wife due to him, and these two shall be one flesh. You see? So, in our interpretation of the Bible, in the field of worship and in other fields, we have got to start at the beginning, in the beginning. Because this is the way in which Jesus tells us we are to understand Scripture and the later development of Scripture. So then, we are to receive, observe, and keep pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. Now, from this source, the word of God, we are first to receive these ordinances of worship, to receive them. That means we are to study the word of God, to discover what they are. And having discovered what they are in the Bible, we are to receive these ordinances for worship as the very word of God. Second, having done that, we are to observe them. We are to start keeping them. And then we are to keep them. Here the Greek would be the word terrain, uh, which means to hold on to these biblical traditions. Having started to observe them, we are to keep on keeping them. And we are to keep them purely, exactly the way they are written, and entirely, all of them, and not just 85 or 95 percent of them. We are to be precise and circumspect about the way in which we discover, 
formulate, begin to observe and to keep and keep on keeping wholly and utterly and entirely every principle that the Bible gives us revealing the manner in which our God is to be worshipped by us. All such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. Uh, some, of course, are more important than others, and the Catechism now goes on to specify which are the most important aspects of our worship of God. It says particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word. You know, every time I read this, I'm stunned again. And I say as a Protestant, what? We are to pray and to give thanks in the name of Christ. We're told to do that before we are told to read, to preach, and to hear the word of God. Should it not be the other way around? First, to hear the word of God, and then to pray out of gratitude. And indeed, I believe that the reading of the word of God is a great stimulus to prayer and to remind us what to do. And yet the catechism mentions uh, the element of prayer and thanksgiving before it mentions the reading of the word of God. And that's amazing. Uh, when I read that, I, I realize that I am not the grateful, thankful Christian that I should be. If anything... Uh, I have too much weight on the reading and exposition of the word of God at the expense of praying to God and thanking him. As I said before in expounding the first commandment, we need to see that we have a grateful, thankful heart to God. But second, look at it this way. If we're just going to open the Bible without praying first and read it mechanically, uh, we are not going to get nearly as much out of it as we will do if when picking up the Bible, before opening it and reading it, we first bow our head and ask Almighty God to stir us up by his Spirit, with a spirit of gratitude and prayerfulness and thankfulness, and then with the prayer of Samuel to say, O Lord, speak now, for thy servant is listening. And so I would urge you, as I would urge myself, to cultivate more and more the spirit of prayerful thanksgiving and thankful prayer even before we read, listen to, and begin to obey the word of God. And having done our praying, we then pass on to the word of God, for you see, all elements of worship must be in accordance with the word of God. But then there's another major way in which God wants his people to worship him. The Catechism goes on to say, through the administration and the receiving of the sacraments. Please notice two aspects. God would have the sacraments administered. They must be accessible to God's people, as they were made yesterday when we came to the Lord's table. But second, the sacraments must be received. There are always those people who go to church and who do not receive the sacrament that is made accessible to them. And uh, they can talk until they're blue in the face to say that they weren't worthy to come to the Lord's table or to holy baptism, but the fact is they are not by faith receiving the sacrament that is being made available. Many Dutch Calvinists and many 
dour Scottish Calvinists are in this unfortunate condition of going to church when the sacraments are made available but not receiving the sacrament of the Lord's table. And all Baptists are guilty of displeasing Almighty God on this score when the sacrament of infant baptism is made available by the church but they will not receive it. This is displeasing to God. And it's useless to say, well, I don't see it that way, and I don't think, and I think the child should grow up first, and I think the child should do this, or in the case of the dour Dutch or Scottish Calvinist that uh, doesn't uh, take the sacrament, say, well, I don't think I'm ready for it yet, and I think maybe at the end of my life I may finally get round to doing this. It's useless. You know, in the Scottish churches today, particularly the smaller, more conservative ones, the Free Church and the Free Presbyterian Church, They've probably got six times the amount of baptismal members, people baptized in that church in infancy, than communicant members that come to the Lord's table. There's something radically wrong with that. Most people that are baptized as children in the Free Presbyterian and the Free Church of Scotland today never become communicant members. And uh, you may almost say in, in their mentality, the... Um, the Lord's Supper is instituted as something to be avoided <laughs> rather than something uh, to be uh, enjoyed and to be received with gratitude. So I call you, if you have been abstaining from the use of the sacraments, when God has made them available to you, I call upon you to repent of this neglect of the sacrament in respect of yourself or in respect of your still unbaptized baby, I've got a little yellow book at the back there. Have you been neglecting your baby? It's designed specially for Baptists because, frankly, I'm convinced that they're breaking this second commandment at this point. Uh, and we need to repent and to make uh, and to come to the Lord in this regard. But thirdly, there's a third chief way in which God would be worshipped by us in terms of the second commandment. A biblical system of church government, such as the Anglican Church or the Baptist Church, or the Plymouth Brethren, and I suppose some even in the Roman Catholic Church, like Luther and Calvin before the Reformation. But my friend, if you would please God fully in terms of the second commandment, uh, not to have any graven images, uh, not to have any notions about false, unbiblical church government that you would construct, what you need is a Presbyterian system of church government. Presbyterian church government, government by elders, is not a nice option which you are free to disregard. Presbyterian church government is the system of church government instituted in the infallible word of God. And to the extent to which we are in churches which are not governed by elders, to that extent we are involved directly in defying God in terms of the second commandment. But then, and here as a Presbyterian, let me hang my head in shame, the second commandment goes on to say we are to have church government and discipline. And discipline. Now perhaps some of the Reformed here need to hang their head in shame too. Because the word discipline doesn't mean beat the daylights out of someone that does something you disapprove of. The word discipline means to disciple, to teach. And the way in which we are to teach is patiently and positively 
to explain to people what the word of God says not so much to correct them but positively to hold before them what the word of God does say to disciple them and then if they don't listen and here the Presbyterians need to repent uh, if they won't listen then we need to have the strength of character to inflict correction upon them I always like to think of the Jewish schoolmaster uh, who is called a uh, a moray um, um, involved in teaching with a long stick in his hand now the purpose of the long stick of the Jewish schoolmaster is to point the students to the blackboard and if they pay attention <laughs> and if they read what is written on the blackboard that's good discipline but if they start going to sleep in the lecture then the Jewish schoolmaster needs to apply that same stick to the hind parts of the unattentive students so that they wake up. I believe that this is similar to the role the elders should be playing at the Church of Jesus Christ. Not to club the people in the pew into submission, but patiently to explain to them what the Word of God says. But if the people go to sleep, and if they switch off, then the elders are to come with church discipline even to the point of excommunication and you know and I know that most churches are fearfully in arrears uh, in regarding both of these two emphases in these orders we really are and to that extent we as office bearers are involved in breaking the second commandment and are displeasing almighty God but then fourth another major way of worshipping God in the right way is the support of the ministry and the maintenance thereof and by the ministry there the meaning is not just the ministry of preaching though that too and perhaps centrally but also the ministry of ruling the eldership the ministry of mercy the diaconate the ministry of outreach the missionary ministry and the other various ministries of the church the church uh, needs to be and the church at worship needs to be well balanced and well organized in the way in which it functions and then we're told that we are further positively to serve God in the right way by religious fasting by religious fasting this would mean on occasion to abstain from food particularly at a time of great national uh, calamity such as that described in Joel 2 at the time of the great locust plague that was threatening to destroy God's people agriculturally when God calls them to prayer uh, but the fasting referred to refers not just to the abstention from food but also to the abstention from other things such as luxuries foregoing a luxury which you might want to enjoy now because of the greater catastrophe that stares at you and it's interesting I think that the catechism cites in this regard sexual abstinence uh, even within marriage in 1st Corinthians 7 verse 5 uh, it says that a wife and a husband are not to defraud one another of the use of one another's bodies which sexually which they owe one another in marriage except he adds with mutual consent for a time so that you can give yourself to fasting and to prayer there are times 
when husband and wife are to separate, particularly if you're an evangelist, you get on a plane and you go to New Zealand to hold lectures, well then there's certain sacrifices which you must joyfully make. But please notice it goes on to say, this is only for a time. There is no merit in trying to uh, break a person's endurance beyond what they are capable of. Certainly not with continual sexual abstinence within marriage, nor indeed with continual keeping away from, from food. Uh, Christians should never try to fast from food in the way in which the Hindus do, a 40-day fast or something like that. No. But if a calamity is coming, then you had better drop everything that you were doing and your luxuries. You better get with your God for Bible study and for prayer, at least for a short while. This is the interpretation that I would give to it. Not that there's any meritoriousness uh, in that fasting from food or from sex uh, within marriage. There is not. But it's a matter of first things first. And if a calamity is going to hit you, the first thing is to take care of that calamity and to put the normal course of events out of gear until you've addressed yourself to that calamity. So there is, I believe, a legitimate use of fasting in the Christian life, but not in the Roman Catholic or the Pentecostalistic sense of the word. Further, and this is interesting, if we would please God in the way we worship him, we are to swear by the name of God. We are to make a holy oath unto Jehovah. Now, there are those Christians who are horrified by this thought, particularly the, the, the Anabaptists who think that one a Christian should never ever swear. Don't swear an oath on the Bible when you go to court, even if the police ask you, you're a witness to the murder? Yes, I am. Did so and so? Uh, did you see A kill B? Yes, I did. Will you swear an oath on the Bible? Well, no, I won't, because I, I don't believe I should. No, I think... The word of God requires that we should swear an oath on the Bible in court if asked to do so, if we are Christians. Uh, but do we realize that quite apart from glorifying God by swearing an oath publicly, uh, an asseveration in a, a court of law, that we are also required to swear oaths in the church? Whenever you uh, come to the Lord's table, you are swearing an oath to Je Jehovah by his grace in rededicating yourself to him to serve him the rest of your life. By the way, coming to the Lord's table, I believe, is the true Calvinist reply to the Arminian altar call. Rededication. And we need to develop far more deeply the oathing, rededicating aspect uh, of the Lord's table. And then I think our methods of evangelism will become more scriptural. But baptism is also an oath. When parents have their infant baptized, they are swearing a holy oath in the name of Jehovah. And having that oath stamped and signed and sealed by the application of the name of the Trinity to the forehead of the baptizee, that by the grace of God they will give that little one a Christian upbringing and expose that little one to daily family worship in the home and weekly ecclesiastical worship in the church and also do everything they can to raise that child educationally in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. 
I do not want to drift tonight to get into the connection between infant baptism and the establishment of Christian day schools, but uh, I believe we get to that a little later. This is a holy oath. And I'm not saying that you're absolutely obligated to put a baptized child into a so-called Christian school. I am saying that in Christian baptism you obligate yourself to give that child the very best Christian education that the child can receive, although one may differ as to the preferential environment in which uh, the child should receive that formal education. But I'd like to say here that I do believe that the chief place where any child is educated is at home and not in any school whichever the nature of the school that the child may attend, which is also important, though I would say less important than the education that the, any child will receive and does receive, indirectly and often not self-consciously, though it should be, in the Christian home. So then, there is this aspect of swearing by the name of God and vowing unto God. In addition, and kindly note, we are required by our catechism in terms of the second commandment positively to disapprove, to detest, and to oppose all false worship and according to each one's place and calling to remove all the monuments of idolatry. Those who would revise our confessions and render them innocuous in this regard who have tampered with other sections of the confession of faith as originally written have mercifully overlooked this provision which is still left in their own statement of the second commandment but as much as you have the power it is your duty before almighty God to remove the monuments of idolatry now that doesn't mean what Karlstadt the friend of Luther thought it meant namely to take a sledgehammer and to go into a Roman Catholic church and to start smashing <laughs> the uh, statues there but I think it does mean uh, what the stand that I took in a job that I had perhaps 20 years ago as a fiery young Christian I had a team of 20 men working under me in my office and uh, I had my office and theirs was next to mine and when I went into that office after taking over the job what was looking down at me from the wall but uh, a naked woman bearing her breasts and so I told these men to remove it seeing they were under my control and they didn't so I went in and I tore it down and I put in its place uh, the seventh commandment and our saviour's comment on the seventh commandment in the sermon on the mount and two of the men rededicated their lives to Christ as a result of this action now I know that it's difficult in a working situation to do this kind of thing but you'll notice the careful language of our catechism according to each person's place and calling its removal and the removal of all the monuments of idolatry you see those men were under me so I had the authority to do that to make them more efficient of course if the man concerned is your boss the situation is a little different uh, there too I think you need to disapprove uh, but to go to the point of uh, removing it uh, after objecting to it I would think myself would be exceeding 
one's place and calling in that situation. So, um, I tell you again what the um, larger catechism says, even after some have amended it. Uh, it still says, we are to disapprove, to detest, to oppose all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, to remove it, and to remove all of the monuments of idolatry. I could give you a lot of interesting anecdotes about that, and about the removement of monuments of idolatry, or that was deemed to be such, even in our 20th century, even in the last 20 years. And perhaps in question time we can discuss that a little. So much then for the positive things that we need to do in our worship of God. There needs to be a preeminence in our worship to the Bible, the written word of God. But even before reading the Bible, publicly or privately, for worship, we are to pray to Almighty God with thanksgiving and to pray for illumination. And then this is also to be accompanied in the thanksgiving, of course, through hymns of thanksgiving and psalm singing as an integral part of worship. Further, the sacraments are to be observed by us pure and entire, uh, to be made available and to be received. We are to see to it that the church government is that system of government prescribed by the word of God. That church discipline is upheld and not allowed to grow lax. That the various ministries of the church are indeed maintained. That religious fasting, where necessary from time to time, is observed. That we swear oaths by the name of God. Uh, even in the vows that we make in church. Marriage too, of course, is a vow, another example of a vow. And we are to disapprove, to detest and to oppose all false worship, and as each one of us has that calling to remove all of the monuments of idolatry. That's the positive thing that we are to do in terms of the second commandment, uh, thou shalt not make any graven images. But what about the negative things? What are the things that we are prohibited from doing in the service of the one true God? This is perhaps a little easier to see, seeing the second commandment, as indeed most of the Ten Commandments, are couched negatively. But remember that though couched negatively, when the negative vice is condemned, the opposite positive virtue is also implicitly enjoined. Negatively then, we are forbidden in the second commandment, uh, we are forbidden from trying to worship the true God in the following ways. All devising, counseling, commanding, using and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. Do you know what that means? That means that if there is a group of people that call themselves Christians, and, uh, but they are not worshipping God in the way in which his word says they should be worshipped, we may not devise or help them to worship God in that way. We may not counsel or advise them to worship God in that way. We may certainly not command them to worship God in that way. We may not ourselves participate in their inadequate way of worshipping God. We may not use it with them. We may not in any wise approve of the way in which they worship God. 
And then I think it's interesting that it does not say we may not prohibit it. This is a very difficult area, but uh, it doesn't say we are to prohibit it. Now, as I understand that, this means that I may not in any way counsel or approve of the Baptistic doctrine of immersion of adults and the Baptistic doctrine of the rejection of infant baptism. I may not in any way participate in or approve or encourage the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass as a way in which uh, Roman Catholics would want to worship the true God. But on the other hand, it seems to me also not to be saying that I must use what influence I have to prohibit this. Indeed, it is possible that in a Christian state, a Christian politician should prohibit the worship of false gods. But I do not find, uh, as clearly stated, uh, instruction to a godly Christian politician in a Christian state to prohibit fellow Christians from worshipping the true God in inadequate ways. Of course, we should counsel them not to, and we should not participate with them. That's why the ecumenical movement is so false and so abominable, because in the ecumenical movement, everyone who calls themselves a Christian is supposed to drop all of the ways that each one considers to be the way approved by God and to pretend that the way in which they are worshipping God isn't very important as long as they can agree that they're all worshipping the same God even if it's in different ways ways in which each one of them considers to be wrong uh, as far as the rest are concerned no we cannot devise, counsel, command, use or anywise approve any religious worship which is not instituted by God himself we cannot partake and participate. Second, negatively, we must not tolerate a false religion. And by false religion, here's another statement that those that would have amended the Westminster Confession have mercifully overlooked in the amendments that they have effected. We may not tolerate a false religion. Now, Calvinists, you may be surprised to hear, have never regarded the Roman Catholic Church as a false religion. And indeed it isn't. It's an impure version of the true religion. Very impure. Or as Calvin says, Rome is a church in ruins. But it's a church in ruins and not a mosque or a pagan temple in ruins. And so the injunction here is directed uh, against tolerating non-Christian religions rather than directed against tolerating uh, an impure worship form of the Christian religion which is also of course to be disapproved of and not personally to be indulged in by uh, the Bible believing child of God but now listen to this and do you not fellow Protestant hang your head in shame with me prohibited is the making of any representation of God or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Every time I pick up a children's Bible in an evangelical bookshop, I open it and I see this wretched, blue-eyed, yellow-haired, uh, long-haired hippie 
in the children's Bible that's supposed to be my Savior Jesus Christ who did not have blue eyes, who did not have long hair or blonde hair, and who may not be betrayed in any way whatsoever according to the word of God and our Westminster fathers. Forbidden is the making of any representation of God or any or all of the three persons. Oh, well, the Christian Reformed Church of the United States of America has its Sunday school material full, full of visible rep technicolor representations of this blonde Jesus. And we have written to these brethren time and time again and said, fellow Calvinist, you are breaking the second commandment. And they said, oh, well, that's just your orthodox Presbyterian hat. And this is the reason why my church in America abandoned the Christian Reformed Sunday School material because we felt it was breaking the second commandment and abandoning that beautiful technicolor material with its blonde, blue-eyed, long-haired, quote, Jesus, unquote, we switched to the much less attractive, drab, orthodox, Presbyterian Sunday School material that did not displease Almighty God or break our biblical and confessional standards in this regard. That has other problems, but not quite as crucial as this particular one as I see it. Now, perhaps I feel extra sensitive on this because I was raised a Roman Catholic, and when I was a little boy of six, the nuns cajoled me into playing the role of Jesus Christ in the nativity play and I've never forgiven myself since because who am I as a sinful human being to try to play the role of my spotless Jesus but then we rationalize about this we pseudo-Protestants in our partial uh, dedication to the commandments of God in our confession we say ah but you see when we have this picture of Jesus correction this abominable lie which we dare to call a picture of Jesus. But the argument goes, we're not portraying the second person of the Trinity. We're portraying the humanity of Jesus. Well, I must say two things. First of all, in terms of the Council of Chalcedon, while you can distinguish Christ's divinity from his humanity, you cannot separate them from one another. So close together are our Savior's humanity and deity that Jesus could say to Philip, who was looking at Jesus, Philip, do you not know that he who has seen me has seen the Father? There's no way in which you can abstract Christ's humanity from his divinity and then say that all you're trying to portray in drawing a picture of him in a children's bible is simply his humanity and not his divinity because the fact is that our saviour though he did indeed have two different natures a divine and a human had only one personality and the one personality that Jesus had was a purely divine personality which did not change when Jesus became flesh. Unless you want to argue that the pictures of Jesus which you collect or point to or promote in Sunday school literature or whatever is of course an impersonal picture of Jesus. And then it's flat. But of course all art comes under the cultural mandate 
subjugate the earth and the sea and the sky to God's glory. But it is only the creature, the creation, the earth and the sea and the sky that we are to subjugate, in this case artistically on the canvas. And when we attempt to subjugate on canvas, or three-dimensionally in a statue, uh, the one who is the creator and not a creature, albeit we rationalize and say we are merely trying artistically to subjugate his creaturely human nature and not his creatorly divine nature, what we have there is an illegitimate, um, an illegitimate uh, transgression of the bounds and limitations of art in terms of the cultural mandate. But there's a further notion. Even if it were proper for us to try to attempt to draw pictures of any one of the three persons of the Trinity which our catechism prohibits with the Bible, why is it that no artist has yet tried to paint Jesus in the one and only way in which the Bible describes him? The Bible describes Jesus in Genesis 49 as having black eyes. Have you ever seen a picture with a black-eyed Jesus? Because we're distinctly told he had black eyes. And second, regarding his hair color, which certainly wasn't blonde, we are told in Revelation chapter 1 now that Jesus had brown feet, brown as copper, and I would assume a brown face, and he had hair that was white as wool. Have you ever seen a picture of Jesus with a brown skin and with white hair? And I'm not saying that we should start painting pictures of Jesus in that way because it seems to me that the description we're given of him in Revelation chapter 1 is highly symbolical and that its purpose is not really to say that Jesus did have dark brown skin any more than it's to say that uh, his eyes were red flickering coals or that there was a steel sword coming out of his mouth or that his hair really was white these are symbols of a greater reality of the glorified Christ but I'm saying that if one wants to go into this picture uh, picture composing business why do these artists not try to follow the biblical description of our saying what they are giving us in their portraiture is a lie and a transgression of the second commandment now if that hurts yours I am sorry but I am forced to say with our confession the second commandment prohibits the making of any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons and please notice either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever we dwell one second longer on the statement either inwardly in our mind it's not only wrong to try to draw pictures of Jesus or to use them in religious worship as they are being used on a royal scale in Protestant Sunday schools and in Protestant children's Bibles today that's not only morally wrong and displeasing to God and a transgression of his second commandment as I read this but it's also wrong for us to try to form an inward picture of God or of any one of the three persons I'm often asked Dr. Lee what do you think Jesus looked like and my reply is don't even try to figure out 
Oh, but what am I to tell my children? I say, tell your children what I tell my children. God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit. Oh, but how can a child believe unless he has this picture? I said, my children believe. And they've never had pictures. I once ordered children's Bibles from Puritan Reform book room, nonetheless, for the... And would you believe it? These Bibles arrived with one picture, thank God, only one picture, but nevertheless one picture of this hippie that was supposed to be Jesus. And I sent those Bibles back and I said, I am a Puritan, I will not have my children's minds defiled by this transgression of the second commandment, though, of course, you didn't print this book. But I can't have it. And I can't have it. And as an ex-Roman Catholic particularly, I cannot have it. Because for me as a Protestant today to approve of that kind of thing is to call into question the rectitude of my own breach with Rome on this score, centrally. But what care the modern so-called Christians about the principles of the wonderful Reformation? We're so ecumenical today, hardly a principle we're prepared to live for or to die for. This is a pathetic state that we as children of the Reformation have come to. But I'll go one step further. What are we to do with our children? Well, I honestly believe that the best way to confuse your children on Christianity is to try to give them a picture and say this is Jesus. Because it's not what he looked like. You're displeasing God when you do that. You're dragging God, the creator, down to the level of the creature and of the sin-stained product of the artist who drew that picture. But then if your child is told, when your child is three or four, this is Jesus, that child will have that infantile, sinful, inadequate and God-dishonoring concept of Jesus for a long time, perhaps lifelong. And But by the grace of God, that child will need a conversion away from that impression to the true spirituality of Jesus Christ today. You say, oh well, didn't Jesus have a human body? Wasn't he paintable? Wasn't he photographable? Yes, he was. But no one painted him and no one photographed him because it pleased the sovereign God for Jesus to incarnate himself at that time when there were no portrait, portrait painters or cameras. And even though the apostles who knew him face to face once knew him according to the flesh, we now no longer know him according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And to try and fix anyone's attention on Jesus, or, or what we think Jesus was prior to his crucifixion, is to stunt their impression of Jesus because the Jesus we know now is not the one who walked in Galilee he is not the crucified one he is not even the resurrected one but he is the Pancrater he is the invisible second Adam ruling the universe at the right hand of God the Father energizing his church invisibly through his powerful spirit in the heart of every Christ-loving person, including the heart of every Christ-loving infant and Christ-loving baby and Christ-loving fetus by his Holy Spirit. When you're told that John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb before his birth, do you think that means that there was a picture of Jesus inside the womb that John was gaping at? Of course not. Of course not. God is Spirit and those that worship him must, must worship him 
in spirit and in truth. I call for our conversion as Church of Jesus Christ, away from the works of our own hands and the artist's hands, to reassert the spirituality of God. And when I say the spirituality of God and the spirituality of Christian religion, I don't mean its dematerialty and its irrelevance to this life here and now. I don't mean its pie in the sky by and byness. But I mean its deep, all-embracing, thoroughly now relevant spirituality. It is an attribute of God that he is invisible. The only wise, invisible God. Immortal, invisible God, only wise, whom no man has seen nor can see, who dwells in inaccessible places and in bright light everlasting. This is our God. There is no other God alongside of this. And this is the God who appeared in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, now you forgive me that little bit of elaboration. I hope it hasn't ridden a hobby horse so much, but it probably needs to be said 50 times louder to the church today than I've said it. So, we are not to serve God in these pictures or images or by them. The footnote there is very interesting. We referred to Exodus 32. Now you remember what had happened there when Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Aaron was down uh, in the valley and the people came and said, Hey Aaron, let's have a party. Let's have a relevant religious service while old Moses is on the mountain. Moses with his medieval, backward, culturally irrelevant liturgical forms. Let's whoop off the gospel, Aaron. Let's jive it up. Let's dance in the spirit. Let's all go panty, you see. <laughs> if not Romanist. And the next thing, this weak, compromised, religious leader, yet servant of Jehovah, Aaron, capitulated under the democratic, anti-theocratic pressure of the mob. And he gave the mob what they wanted. And so they melted for themselves their golden objects and they made what? A golden calf. Now please, please give me your full attention. You remember what Aaron said to them when the golden calf was ready, just before the great religious dance and whoopee, yahoo, uh, religious experience was due to start. Remember what Aaron said? He actually said, This is your triune God, O Israel, that delivered you out of the land of Egypt. Some Bible versions translate a little inadequately, these are thy gods. But the Hebrew has it, this is your triune God, your Elohim. In other words, do not think for one moment, do not think for one moment, that Aaron or the people for one moment thought that they were worshipping Baal, they didn't. They thought that they were worshipping the one true God, Father, Son and Spirit. But they were worshipping him in a visibilized, unspiritual, uncommanded, and an ungodly way. They were not bringing the first commandment. They were bringing the second commandment. They were 
not worshipping a God other than Jehovah Jesus. But they were trying to worship Jehovah Jesus in an illegitimate way. And I tell you solemnly tonight, friends, our churches are full of these transgressions of the second commandment. And God will not be mocked. And God will not be mocked. So, our confession, our catechism, says that we are not to worship God in these idols, uh, in these images and pictures, or by them. Forbidden is the making of any representation of feigned deities, and all worship of them, or service belonging to them. And under feigned deity, we can perhaps think of the Romish concept of Mary being the mother of God. Well, I suppose if Mary's the mother of God, that Mary's mother is God's grandmother, and Mary's grandmother is God's great-grandmother, and Eve is God's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. But of course the meaning is, of Rome, Mary is the mother of the one who according to his divinity is God, even though it's acknowledged that Mary is a creature. But what a sad and what a very perilous, perilous uh, attribute to give to the Virgin Mary to describe her as the mother of God rather than the mother of the man Christ Jesus, which is all that she was. And then the further appellations, Queen of Heaven, Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And then these pictures of Mary and statues of Mary and uh, honor that is brought to Mary rather than worship. Rome is careful to make that distinction. But if you have, as I have seen, a Roman Catholic worshipper bow down and humbly mumble words and prayers to this dead statue, whether of Mary or supposedly of Jesus or whatever, you cannot but not see any principial distinction between that and the dancing of the people of God round this golden calf while calling that calf a representation of the true God as a means to get to the true God and as displeasing to Almighty God. By the way, when the Hindu bows down before this image, the statue, of the god Ganesh with a head like an elephant riding on a mouse he does not think that the statue that he's bowing down before is the god Ganesh he will tell you that this is merely an aid to worship the god behind the image and so what Roman ritualists do in respect of claiming to worship the true god through statues is not essentially dissimilar from what the Hindus are doing other than it is alleged to represent a different God in the two cases. We continue in this second commandment to be warned against all superstitious devices. Superstitious devices. Have you ever thought of all the superstitions that people have? Superstitions. It's, it's just amazing how superstitious some Christians get. And I mean born-again Christians. Christians who will desecrate the Sabbath, which God says we must keep, but Christians who will attach greater reverence to Good Friday or to 
Christmas Day than they ever do to Sunday, the memorial of our Saviour's resurrection. That's superstition, my friend. But what about another modern Protestant superstition? We often no longer believe the grand old Protestant doctrine that the preaching of the word of God is far more important than the administration of the sacrament, which of course it is. The administration of the sacrament takes its strength from the preaching of the word of God, not the other way around. And yet how many Protestants are there who absent themselves from the regular preaching of the word of God but when they have a baby to be baptized or make their annual pilgrimage to the church for annual communion, that is now very special. My friend, that is a thoroughly Romish, ritualistic, unscriptural attitude of the relationship between the word and the sacrament. That's putting the sacramental cart in front of the visible preaching word horse. And to do that is to be superstitious. And I can go on and on and on. I once passed a church that I'm convinced that half of the people in the pew really believe that God lived in the stained glass window in the church. The only thing these people could ever get excited about was the stained glass window. They almost worshipped this wretched thing. Not to say what was on that stained glass window. Representations that should never have been put there in the first place. And when people's religion, people who are Christians, are more interested in the stained glass window of the church or the size of the, of the bouquet of flowers on the pulpit rather than the powerful preaching of the word of God, I tell you the church is riddled with superstition and is ripe for reformation, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or whatever it is. And I'm going to have to say that the Baptist brethren, God bless them, have taken from the worship of God. They have removed from covenant infants the sacrament of baptism which God's covenant people, including their infants, are entitled to receive. And I'm going to have to say that the Roman Catholics have added to the worship of God in many, many ways. Centrally in the Mass, they have added elements of transubstantiation that are not taught in the Word of God and which indeed are later described as blasphemy and as repugnant to good sense and to Scripture. And this is so whether these things, these additions or subtractions from what the Word of God says, have been invented or taken up by ourselves, whether we've invented them, or whether we've been receiving them by tradition from others, by our predecessors. Oh, well, you see, preacher, our church never did it that way before. Well, yes, dear people, but the Bible says, well, really, we don't care what the Bible says. Our great-grandfather did it this way, and that's the way it's going to be. If you want to be our preacher, ever run into that? If you haven't in New Zealand, God bless New Zealand, but I tell you, the American churches are full of it. They're full of it. No openness to ongoing reformation from the word of God. We will do it the way our fathers and our grandfathers did it, whatever you say and whatever God says. That's where it's at. Preach of the second commandment. Whether these traditions are being given to us under the title of antiquity, well, we've done it this way for 500 years, by custom, well, we have this, this local custom and we think it's very nice uh, to do it this way. Uh, and if you're coming in from the outside, as most preachers do, well, you've got to do our custom. 
I once pastored a church where they had this wretched nativity scene with donkeys and I don't know what else and I nearly fell over the thing every time I got into the pulpit and it upset me so much that I couldn't preach properly well not that that disturbed the lady who insisted on inflicting all of this on the church what did she care about the preaching of the word of God or the preacher's comfort in preaching the word of God they always had these donkeys and the manger and the straw and who knows what else there and they were not about to discontinue it now that a reformer had hit town. Well, that's what we preachers are up against. Pray for us. I tell you, it's difficult to be a preacher unless you're pioneering a church and constructing it. Sometimes I just wish that we'd go out on the street corners and preach the gospel to the pagans and that Jesus out of those rocks would raise up children of Abraham because if you, God help us, if we inherit a Presbyterian, you'll never reform him but for a miracle. You've got to turn a Baptist into a Presbyterian, then you've got a Jew. With laudable exceptions. With laudable exceptions. That's been my experience by and large. Nor can we do these things with good intent. Well, we don't mean anything wrong by it. I, I mean I mean, look how meaningful it makes it to the to the children. I was once in a church which I pastored and at Christmas time these candles came out. And now everybody was to ignite the candle of the person next door to them and sing while they swing these candles backwards and forwards. And I feel uncomfortable like that as an ex-Roman Catholic. To me this is ritualism. And I try to keep things in perspective. And I, of course the people intended it well. The intention was good. But my friend, good intention is not enough if the word of God does not command it or implicitly tend to prohibit it or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and the ordinances which God hath appointed. Now that I had a little boy in a church once, and his parents had apostatized and joined the Baptist church, and my session ordered me to admit that eight-year-old to the Lord's table, that child of ex-Presbyterians who had publicly repudiated the sacrament of infant baptism and dragged it through the mud. And so I attempted to counsel with the people. And finally I had the majority of my session tell me A. Infant baptism is not necessary, it is an option. We don't have to insist on infant baptism in a Presbyterian church. If the people want their baby baptized, well, we'll do it for them. Uh, but if they don't want the baby baptized, then we leave them alone. Useless for me to say, but baptism replaces circumcision. And God says in Genesis 17 that he that hath the, the foreskin that is not circumcised shall be cut off. He hath broken my covenant. What did my session care about what God says? We never did it that way before. So now here I am ordered by my session to admit this eight-year-old son of apostate Presbyterians who, thank God, were Baptists. Now and then, now and then they were Baptists. To the Lord's table the next week without catechizing them. Well, fight with your session. Finally, manage to make a truce to catechize the child for five weeks. Session very upset. We'll drive the parents away from the church. Why must the child wait for the next communion service? Why can't he immediately come into the communion service this Sunday? 
even though the church hasn't seen him or his parents for donkey's years. You see, you see, uh, this is not good enough as a way to worship God. God has revealed, I think, clearly in his word, how he would be served regarding the circumstances of the administration of the sacraments and I think the necessity of, of, of uh, adequate catechizing of a baptismal member before he or she is admitted to the Lord's table. But when you get these customs coupled with good intent and the closing of the word of God and of our confessions to this, pushing it to one side, I would almost weep as to the reformability of the deformed Protestant church of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Well, let me end on a happier note. On a happier note, you will notice that it says it annexes a promise and a curse to those that keep this commandment. It says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of those that hate him. We're in churches that will not reform and that resist reformation in terms of the word of God and that continue with defamation the curse of the fathers the church fathers in that church the elders, the preachers will be visited unto the children of the third and the fourth generation of those that hate God but and I won't dwell on that I won't dwell on that except to say this is the curse of the covenant that comes against those that claim to be God's people but do not serve him the way in which God says he must be served but thank God and how I love to end on a positive note with this gospel of mercy God is the God that shows mercy unto thousands of them unto thousands of generations <coughs> of them that love him and keep his commandments listen to question 110 of the larger catechism this means besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, his fervent zeal for his own worship, his revengeful indignation against all false worship, as being spiritual whoredom, accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him, and threatening to pass unto various generations, but esteeming the observers of this commandment such as love him and keep his commandments and promising mercy to them unto many generations. Ah, I offer you the glorious gospel of forgiveness of our Savior Jesus Christ tonight. Those of you who wittingly or unwittingly have been breaking this and other commandments, as we all have to some extent or other, if you persist in your apostasy from God and His commandments, God will punish you and your children and your children's children and your children's children and then the wrath of God will have worn itself out. Thank God. But if you love God and keep his commandments, as Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, then I offer to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, listen carefully, folks, mercy for you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren unto thousands of generations. And the Hebrew makes this clear that it's at least 3,000 generations. And if each generation is 20 years, being the time between the birth of a child 
and the birth of the child's child, this would be about 58,000 years, I believe. This, as an interesting eschatological observation, <laughs> to those who think that the world is about to end by yesterday before midnight. And so we have a great God. And as we serve God, we must claim the promises of this great, great God. Not just for ourselves and our children, but for the millennia which we should be expecting are yet to come. You say, well, that was written several thousand years ago. That's right, it was written about three, let's say four thousand years ago, which means it's still going to be 56,000 years before the promise is fully fulfilled. Let us be called upon in the name of our God to an ongoing reformation, to a permanent reformation, but to a reformation where we will reform the church today by the inworking of His Holy Spirit, and where we will so train our beloved children and grandchildren that they may receive even more insight than we receive. For them in their turn to reform the church even more tomorrow so that every day with Jesus, folks, will be sweeter than the day before. Because we love Him and His commandments more and more. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words then are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.